Okay, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the riches that are there. Thank you that it is the eternal word of the living God. And Father, we pray that as we um, turn to this passage this, this evening, would you please open it to us? Please take my lips and cause them to be your, your words. Take our ears and help us to hear what you're saying and to apply them to our lives. And we pray your Holy Spirit would be the divine conductor as we look into this passage. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, this uh, short book of Malachi is, you've probably noticed, the last book in the Old Testament. I say in our Old Testament, it's not actually the last book in the Hebrew Bible because some of their books are arranged in different order, but the content is the same. But nevertheless, it was, it's likely that Malachi's was the last prophetic voice from God that Israel heard until the arrival of John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Jesus, the Messiah. If you could have the next slide, please, Matt. The, the name Malachi means my messenger. Uh, that has led some people to believe that this was the writer's role rather than his name. But no other prophetic book of the Old Testament is unnamed. So most commentators believe that it, it was his name, but he fulfilled the calling that his name referred to as being God's messenger. We have no information about his ancestry or his personal life. He just launches straight into his message that uh, God gave him to give. The, the book isn't dated, but the general consensus is that it was probably about uh, 450 to 430 BC. And it was clearly written during the time of the Persian Empire and several decades after the rebuilding of the temple that took place during Zechariah's ministry. Uh, the temple was finished about 515 BC. And the book makes reference to um, temple sacrifices, but the spiritual condition of the people was poor. Uh, actually not unlike 21st century Britain. The novelty of having the temple back again had worn off. And this would be in line with the conditions during the time of Ezra, who returned to Judah in 458 BC, and Nehemiah, who returned in 444 BC. And Israel was in a situation where there was intermarriage with pagans, there was lack of support for the ministry of the temple service, and oppression of the poor. Divorce was seemingly common, and there was a general moral ambivalence. And given these conditions, we can see that this is a book that has relevance for our day as well. When God's people drift from him and embrace falsehood, or merely just lose interest in God and his ways, he will not be an idle spectator, but he will intervene. He cares too much for his people to let them stay drifting from him. And that's a reminder for us that we must remain fervent in our devotion to God. And we need to take note and avoid the mistakes of the Israel, because otherwise his, God's loving discipline will follow. And the ups and downs in the history of Israel are a good reminder of that, and we need to avoid their mistakes. And we should never let ourselves become indifferent to God 
to his word or to his work. It's so easy, isn't it, to become used to doing church, to go through the motions, but that approach never bears good fruit for God. And as believers who know God, who have known the wonderful nature of our salvation in Christ, who gave everything for us, it's inexcusable to turn our backs on him, or even just to become blasé about our walk with him. And yet so many of us succumb to the enemy's tactics and do just that. But mediocrity in our faith is never something that God ordains for us. It bears little fruit, so let's avoid it. So, the book. It has only 55 verses, and 47 of those are directly spoken by God. And that makes it unique in the Bible for that proportion of direct uh, words from God. And the message in Malachi comprises six oracles from God, and the first we find in verses 1 to 5. And they read, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, In what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, We have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will throw them down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, The Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Now, a a quick overview reading, it's fairly obvious that that needs unpacking a bit. (laughs) So let's see what we can do. And God's first message here, I think, is so gracious. It's that he loves his people. And he takes up the style of the book as a sort of form of debate or dispute between God and his people. And we will see that recurring as we go through the book. And God says he loves them. Uh, But the response is that the people were saying, well, in what way have you loved us? And God will have some corrective things to say to Israel through Malachi. But in his grace, he first assures them of his love, even if they were not valuing it at the time. It's one thing for unbelievers to be oblivious to God's love. But frankly, it's a disgrace when God's own people do the same. For us in our day, We live in a generation that has largely turned its back on God and the gospel. But many Christians have embraced the world and try to tack their relationship with God onto a worldly lifestyle. And that will never do in God's sight. His love for us cost him the blood of his son. So how can we be blasé or mediocre about it? How can we even ask how God has loved us We might not voice the question, but it's easy to doubt God's love in our hearts, isn't it? For those of us who are parents, do our children see in us a devotion and a commitment to God that makes a difference to daily life? They will very quickly see through us if by our behaviour we live as though God comes rather low down our order of priorities in life. And if God is not clearly first in our lives, 
they will think that he needn't come at the top of their priorities either. And when Jesus gave to John his messages to the seven churches in Revelation, what was his first criticism of the first church in Ephesus? It had lost its love, its first love. The daily prayer spoken by the Jews, taken from Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, was that they were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul and all their strength. And God was in a covenant relationship with Israel. But here they are questioning his love for them. And as Christians we are bought with the high price of Jesus' blood. So surely we should love God wholeheartedly. And God counters this question of his love for Israel by reminding them of his love in his election of Jacob, who was the father of the twelve tribes that would become Israel. It should have been enough for them to believe God's first straightforward statement of his love at the beginning of verse 2. But God, it seems, had to elaborate on how he loved them. God loved Israel even before the nation existed. Um, because he knew the plans that he had, and he still has for them. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, had twins, Esau and Jacob. And God chose Jacob to be the line through which Israel was to come into existence, and through whom the Messiah was to, was to come. And Esau, the elder son by a few minutes, became the father of the Edomites, but did not obtain the inheritance or the rights of the firstborn, because before their birth took place, God chose Jacob. And the mention of God hating Esau does not mean that he was not the recipient of God's love. He was. But uh, it was, he was the recipient of, uh, or it was a case of God choosing Jacob for his purposes. We find a similar expression used by Jesus in Luke 14, 26, which hopefully is on the next slide. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And here Jesus is not telling us to hate our family members. But it's a typical Jewish expression of comparison. So our love for and our devotion to Jesus must take priority over our love for our family and, of course, others. So this shouldn't be taken as a suggestion that Esau was predestined for damnation. That's not meant here. But God is speaking of his purposes for Israel as his chosen uh, nation. Apart from that, the Edomites were a wicked people who opposed God and his purposes. But God is never capricious in his choices towards people. He always acts with a good purpose that flows from his heart of pure, undiluted love. And the benefits of God's love and his election of Israel are expanded on in verses 3 to 5. Edom became an enemy of Israel and God had dealt with them in the light of that. The prophet Obadiah promised judgment against the land and the people of Edom, particularly in view of their pride. And by Malachi's time, that judgment had happened. But God's choice of Israel assured uh, his love for them. And God's comments about Edom in this passage are not intended to imply harshness by God, but to reassure Israel 
of God's continued love and covenantal care for Israel. When the mountains of Edom had become something of a wasteland and had become a place where desert jackals would pass on the land to their offspring. Edom's efforts to rebuild were frustrated by God. We see that in verse 4. But that was actually an example of the Abrahamic covenant, that God would bless those who would bless Abraham, and by extension Israel, and curse him who would curse Israel. God's reference to Edom being the wicked land in verse 4 contrasts with Israel being called the Holy Land in Zechariah 2, verse 12. And the conclusion of this section is in verse 5. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. And the way that, is, that God dealt with Israel's enemy should make Israel sit up and notice how great God is, how gracious he is, and then magnify his name and then follow him sincerely. If they did that, God would also be magnified through the faithful godly witness of Israel to the nations around. But first they had to get their own house in order. Then the second oracle runs from verses 1, 6 through to 2, verse 9. We won't have time for all of that today, but we'll make a start with verses 6 to 8. A son honours his father and a servant his master. If then I am father, where is my honour? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice... Is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favourably, says the Lord of hosts. And God starts here by addressing the priests in verse 6. And they should have shown a godly lead to the people, but who had clearly failed to do so, as they are here accused of despising God's name. And God takes it as a given that a son will honour his father and a servant his master. That's the normal and the proper way of things. And yet God points out that he is the father to Israel, but he hadn't received the honour that's due to him. He is also their master, yet they had not shown him the reverence they should have. We've already seen how Israel had covenanted to love the Lord their God with all their heart all their soul and all their strength, Deuteronomy 6.5. But this was obviously not happening, and the priests were not giving a godly lead. No doubt the priests were diligent in doing their religious duties, but it was all outward performance of what the rules required, and not an expression of the love and honour from the heart that should have motivated them. And as religious leaders, they could not build the people up in their faith when they were running on empty themselves. It's a harsh statement from God here that the priests despised God's name. The very ones who should be drawing the people to God were the ones who despised God's name and who were not giving him honour and reverence. 
And after the return from exile, it was the priests and the Levites who had sealed the covenant with God that they would walk in the ways of God. We see that from Nehemiah 38 through to 1039. And they would be the ones who would be required to teach the people in that. But they hadn't done it. And once more, the priest's response to God's accusation is a question. In what way have we despised your name? The very fact that they had to ask the question shows how far they had drifted in their faith. It's so sad when people are so blind that they cannot see how they are failing God. The priests weren't even aware that they despised God's name with their actions. It meant that it came by degrees. They probably didn't know the extent of their offence and simply carried on as before. But they slowly slid into despising God's name and a little contamination soon spreads to something more serious. And God responded that they offered defiled food on his altar. But even then they still couldn't see it. They were treating the table or the altar of the Lord with contempt. But God had to spell it out for them before they were missing God's point. As priests, they would have been familiar with Leviticus 22, verse 2. Can I have the next slide, please? Speak to Aaron and his sons, that they may separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel, that they do not profane my holy name by what they dedicate to me. I am the Lord. That was God's requirement. They were aware that they shouldn't profane God's holy name by what they dedicated to him. And that chapter went on to set out that they were not to offer to God any animal that was in any way blemished, for God was to have the best. And then that was reiterated in Deuteronomy 15, verse 21. But if there is a defect in it, if it is lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. And yet in verse 8, back in Malachi, God says that they were offering animals that were blind, lame or sick, which was a clear breach of the law of Moses that formed the basis of the covenant between God and Israel. And God challenged them to offer such defective offerings to their governor to see if he found them acceptable. And this verse shows us that there was a governor there over the nation, giving us a clue that this was during the reign of the Persian Empire. And Nehemiah 5 suggests that there were great banquets held by the governor in those days. And the choice food would not have included anything defective or the leftovers of the animals that no one else wanted. But God is saying here that if a human governor wouldn't accept a defective gift or offering, how much more should they not give a blemished offering to God? He is the ultimate sovereign over the entire universe. And he deserves our best. After all, a few hundred years later, he would give the best to mankind in the form of his son. But before we criticise Israel's priests here, we should remember that similar things go on in the church today. There are many churches where the, the priests go through the religious motions without any true regard for God. They read the right words from their books of liturgy, but they're not giving to God a true offering of honour and reverence in their lives. 
It's easy to do it in the mechanical indifference with hearts that are far from God. They're not feeding God's people with the true word of God, but are merely coming out with a few nice words that are all but meaningless. Many preachers are more adept at telling jokes and nice stories than they are teaching the true word of God. And many people in such churches think they've heard a good talk, but all that's happened is they've been entertained. So many churches are accepting in God's name the world's ways that God finds despicable. And they're seeking to bless that which God will not bless. And much of the church seems very ready these days to embrace that which God hates. And then it wonders why the church is in decline. And this then encourages the people to be blasé about their own commitment to God. To live much as the world lives, but with a bit of religion added to make it seem respectable. But before we point a finger at such churches, which clearly fall short of what God looks for, are we entirely guiltless? Do we sometimes give God second best, whether that's financially or in our devotion or in our time? Do we insist on having some me time when we should be giving God our whole attention and devotion? Do we just turn up for church, whether in person or online, just out of habit, to do the churchy bit and then go away to enjoy the rest of the day unchanged? Do we prepare ourselves so that we're ready to meet with, to worship and to hear from our almighty God, who gave his Son, so that we might have the awesome privilege of being able to come before God and to know his welcome? Do we put into practice what God has said to us from his word, or do we just shelve it and then forget it? Now please understand, I'm not being critical of anyone here. I believe we have a great church, but it's very easy to be less than wholehearted in our daily walk with God. It's easy to give God second best or worse when he deserves the very best every time. Do we ever give God the leftovers of our time or our money or our love or our honour, giving what we can get away with rather than what will truly please him? What we give to God, whether it be time, money, service or love or honour, will reflect what is in our hearts. So let's examine our hearts and never serve God too cheaply. Let's move on to verses 9 9 to 11. But now entreat God's favour that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favourably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors, or that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And here God challenges the priests to entreat God's favour. The purpose of the challenge uh, shows God's heart that he might be gracious to him, to them. God loves to be gracious to his people, but he will never compromise his standards. And that's actually why he had to send Jesus to die in our place, so that he could show his grace to us in salvation, because he cannot compromise his standards. But so long as the priests were doing what was not right, 
God would not accept them favourably. God's love for his people is such that he won't leave them in a place of disobedience. He will gradually and lovingly turn their heat up to bring them to their senses so that they return to him. If they still refuse to heed his voice, sometimes he will even go to the extreme of taking them home to himself so they don't cause more damage to themselves, to others, and to the work and reputation of God. And may we always be those who bring honour and not disgrace to God's name. In verse 10, God challenges the priests, asking which one of them would shut the doors of the temple so that they would not kindle fire on the altar in vain. The situation had become so bad that in God's sight, it was better for them to close the temple and not bring their offerings, because they were tainted and not done according to God's instructions. And God is never impressed or taken in by hypocrisy. And if our concept of God is so low that we think he's pleased with cheap, half-hearted worship, then we don't know the God of the Bible. Indeed, if our God were to be impressed with anything less than our best, then he wouldn't be worthy of our worship. It's profoundly sad when people do their religion, thinking they're pleasing God, but he says they might as well not have bothered. Indeed, it would have been better if they hadn't. And this has a remarkably modern feel to it, because God has closed the churches, of, the doors of many churches over the last 18 months or so around the world because of the pandemic. But among those will be some very good churches who are faithfully and fruitfully serving God and praise God for them. But there will also be many churches who are bringing tainted offerings before God, such that he wanted the doors closed. And how we need to ensure that we come to God with clean hands, that we bring an offering of praise and worship that's fitting and acceptable to him. And similarly, our lives daily should be acceptable to God so that we don't bring tainted service to God, but that which is filled with and anointed by the Holy Spirit. And sometimes that which is trendy in church circles is little more than worldly religion that brings no pleasure or honour to God. But amid that, praise God for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. Praise him for the indwelling Holy Spirit who leads us in paths of righteousness. And then in verse 11, God says that his name will be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name, he says, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations. And God is here addressing the priests of Israel. But with the benefit of history, we can see that although the Jewish people rejected their Messiah, God's name has been made great among the Gentiles through the church. We see that in part now, but God is looking beyond the church era to the messianic kingdom, when Jesus will be on the throne in Jerusalem, and God's name will be great in every place, in every nation. And the fact that Jesus will reign from Jerusalem shows that God has not forsaken or forgotten or rejected Israel. He's not transferred his covenant to the church, for that would have the effect of God breaking his covenant. God always keeps his word. And he will not dump his chosen people because of their unfaithfulness. Rather, he will extend his blessing to all nations. But Israel is forever his chosen people. 
We've only done 11 verses, but these few verses from Malachi have packed a mighty punch today. And we all need to take his words seriously. There's a lot that we can learn from this passage so that we don't make the same mistakes that Israel did in Malachi's day. I believe that our church is a place of great blessing and the people in it are a great blessing and an encouragement to us all. However, given what Malachi has said, surely we can all do better. And we should take God's challenges in this passage seriously. God loves us immensely, such that he sent his son to die for us. So he doesn't want to whip us, but rather it's his love that's been poured out as he longs for authentic, vibrant fellowship with us. His deep love for us requires a response of showing our love in return and enjoying the fellowship with God that cost him so dearly. So let's take full advantage of that amazing privilege every day and show the world that there is a better way to live through Jesus. Shall we pray? Lord, there's been some tough words in this passage, but we thank you that they're recorded there. Lord, we can see how Israel failed, but we can see in our own hearts it's so easy to become complacent. It's so easy to give you that which is second best or worse. But Lord, please help us to be fervent in our love for you. Help us to, to love you wholeheartedly. Pour your spirit into us afresh. Warm us where we're going cold. And Lord, may we be a church that shines brightly with that love in a dark world, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.